This afternoon, we confess together the canons of Dort, Heads 5, Articles 4-6. through six. These are rather lengthy, so allow me to read them for you. Article 4. Although that the, the power of God strengthening, preserving true believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh, yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions they cannot by their own fault depart from the leading of grace, be led astray by the desires of the flesh, and give in to them. For this reason they must constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptations. When they fail to do this, not only can they be carried away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones, but also by God's just permission they sometimes are so carried away. Witness the sad cases described in Scripture of David, Peter, and other saints falling into sins. Article 5. By such monstrous sins, however, they greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time, until after they have returned to the way by genuine repentance, God's fatherly face again shines upon them. Article 6. For God, who is rich in mercy, according to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not take his Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. Neither does he let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and the state of justification, or commit the sin which leads to death, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and plunge themselves entirely forsaken by him into eternal ruin. Let's pray. Father, the doctrine of perseverance is so precious to us because we realize that we cannot rely on ourselves. We realize that we do sin and sometimes do so seriously. You are faithful, God, to uh, sustain us, to, to sustain our faith, and to love us to the very end. Please remind us that now of that now as we hear your word preached, both law and gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The scripture lesson from which our sermon comes, is found in Psalm 51. Once again, the scripture lesson comes from Psalm 51. Brothers and sisters, this is the holy word of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. For you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls would be offered on your altar. The word of God so far. Congregation of Christ and Friends. Some would say that if you fall into a great and serious sin, say such as adultery, then it's all over. That is, if you've committed the sin, then you lose your salvation and you go to hell automatically. But that belief flies in the face of what happened to King David. Not only did he commit adultery, he committed murder. Yet God forgave him. So even when a Christian commits heinous sins, he may be forgiven. But some argue that this leads to license, right? Why not sin in any way you want and God forgives you? But the Bible never says that as long as you have faith in Christ, you can sin in any way you wish. All Christians are obligated to follow God's law. Furthermore, if one continues in unrepentant sin, then one is walking the wide road to hell and is in danger of not coming back because one becomes delusional, not thinking that their sin is a big deal to God. On the other hand, as one confesses sin, one is becoming clearer in what is right and true. That God is good and gracious and following Him and His way through Christ is good. That is a proper response of grace. It doesn't lead to license. It provides clarity as one walks with God in Christ. True Christians can and do fall into serious sin which offends God. But God is faithful when you are not and He will preserve you to the end. And David in Psalm 51, speaks to this reality. So first, God, or Christians can and do fall into serious sin. King David is probably one of the greatest examples of this, or infamous examples, we should say, in the scriptures. According to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, we see and understand the fall of King David. Up to this point in his kingdom, he was the greatest king. All people... Um, praised him as a great and righteous king. This was a man after God's own heart. But according to the story, one time in the spring, he stayed home instead of going to war. As the story goes, he's walking on the rooftop one day, and he looks down and he sees Bathsheba uh, bathing. He has her brought up to him. They have relations. And then she becomes pregnant. Now, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was away at war, fighting for the kingdom, a righteous man. 
But David's stuck. What does he do? So he calls for Uriah to come back. And he wants Uriah to spend the night with his wife. So it looks like things happen naturally that she got pregnant, right? But Uriah, being the righteous man that he is, refuses to sleep with his wife. He sleeps outside the house. This doesn't deter David. Uh, David brings him in for a good meal and lots of drinks and tries again. Go, you know, go home tonight. He doesn't do it. So then King David sends Uriah back to the front line where quickly he is killed. So here's King David, a righteous man, a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, who's now committed adultery and murder. So Christians, too, can and do fall into heinous sins. Here's David, who falls into this horrible sin. And Psalm 51 is a testimony to this event and the conviction of David. So as the story finishes, you understand that uh, Nathan, the prophet, comes to King David, tells him the story about a lamb, and turns it into a story about him, that he is the man who sinned against God. So God, through his word, through the prophet, convicts David of his horrible sin. So our first point is to establish clearly that he, there's, uh, there are clear examples of Old Testament saints falling into sin. So Psalm 51 is uh, partially a record of this. Notice David cries out for the mercy of God, that God would forgive his great sin. David confesses that he has sinned, he's missed the mark of perfection, he has transgressed the law, he's broken the law, and that his actions are evil. So notice here there's no blame shifting at this point in David's life when he does confess his sin. He's very clear that his sin is heinous, it is serious. No blame shifting saying, well, it's really her fault, she's the one who was outside bathing, or if the circumstances were different, I wouldn't have done it. He says, no, it's my sin, O God. Verse 5 of Psalm 51. I, David said, was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So here David confesses to God that he sins because he is a sinner. He was born in sin. He was conceived in sin. The sin of Adam has been imputed to him. He's no different from anyone else. It's his fault. Therefore David sinned while against Bathsheba, as he goes on to say, and the sin against Uriah certainly, was also and above all against God. Verse 4, against you, you only, God, Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words? In other words, all sin, even sins against neighbor, are sins against God. The Tenth Commandment sums that up. Coveting is breaking all of the law. Here specifically breaks the First Commandment. He decides to be God, that he can decide to do whatever he wants as king in the kingdom. But no, he offends God. So let's be clear, one of the greatest saints in all of the scriptures, King David, falls into heinous, outrageous sin. And today Christians can still fall into heinous sin. Because of this reality, as we've already discussed, 
Last week, Christians are sinners too. Christians struggle, according to Romans chapter 7, like Paul struggles with sin. And because you are still depraved and have a natural tendency to hate God and neighbor, you have a natural tendency to commit horrible sins. Sins which hurt you. Sins which hurt your family. That hurt the church. Adultery. Murder. Theft. Driving drunk and hurting someone. Using drugs and hurting yourself. Disobeying parents. Creating false worship. Believing and embracing false doctrine. All of these can be and are true at times of Christians. And in the history of the church... The church has understood the scriptures to say the worst sins are the sins of bad doctrine. Many times we want to say, well, it's really, you know, the warm sins such as lust or or whatever. We sort of pick and choose. But God says, no, to offend me above all by wrong belief is horrible. And of course, wrong theology leads to bad practice. And all of these sins, brothers and sisters, have severe effects. Article 5. Serious sins greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, guilt, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time. Sin creates its own storm, right? In which you are confused, deluded, and you begin to lose touch with the closeness you have with God ordinarily. And all this is true of King David. David confesses that God is just and his judgment against him. This confession reveals that God is offended. Sin is against him. And God is angry with David and with all sin, or rather all who sin against him. But really, what's really crazy about this is notice in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, Nathan says to David that the Lord has put away his sin so that he won't die. He should die. He killed somebody. He committed adultery. But God is gracious to him, says, I won't kill you. So David doesn't die simply because of God's promise, because of his covenant of grace, which promises life through Christ. David is still justified, but at the same time still a sinner. So nonetheless, David's sin of pollution has offended God, and David's vital relationship to God must be restored. When we say that David's vital relationship to God must be restored, we are saying that fellowship with God must be restored. Not David's legal relationship and justification, that remains the same, but rather his close fellowship with God which he prays to God and seeks him above all, that must be restored. As the canon says, the exercise of faith has been suspended. David has grieved the Holy Spirit and his conscience has been wounded. He understands at this point that he's lost something very vital, something that he took for granted. That is a clear conscience, that he's walked with his God, followed him, and God has blessed him. That is broken. And this is why David cries out for God's mercy and grace and why he confesses his sin, which has caused this interruption in fellowship with God. He says in verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Of course, this is a metaphor to say that he's in moral anguish. I mean, haven't you committed sins before? Maybe not great and heinous sins, but sins where you feel anguished by that. That's a consequence of sin. It's like having your bones broken. It would be better to have broken bones than to sin against God. And David continues in verses 9 and following. Hide your face from my sins. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What a great, powerful prayer that the church prays. Forgive us, God, for our sins. Cleanse our hearts. Now notice here, there's this issue of grieving the Holy Spirit. And this phrase comes from Paul's words in Ephesians 4.30, where Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now by this, Paul means that when you sin... You work against the Spirit of God who is working to sanctify you throughout your life. The Holy Spirit is a person, right? Not a force. He is the third person of the Godhead. The contents is sin, which disrupts the life of the community. So one commentator says this, These sins deny in practice the meaning of his indwelling and sanctify in presence in the believer, which is a token of his final Redemption. The Spirit has sealed you for the final day of redemption. He is sanctifying you, making you more like Christ. When you sin against God, you sin against Him who is doing something else in your life, right? So it's like this. The Holy Spirit is moving you in a certain direction toward heaven and you grieve Him when you say, no, I'm going to go in this direction. You think of that. Your sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, Christians today can and still offend God. They incur guilt, grieve the Holy Spirit, interrupt the exercise of faith, wound the conscience, and sometimes for a while lose a sense of God's favor. So the cans here are simply pointing out uh, that sin has disastrous effects in your life. Sin is foolishness, and it can lead to more foolishness and even to heinous sin. But after all, sin doesn't satisfy, Right? It doesn't make you feel better. It doesn't produce happiness as you thought it would. So sin is a great liar, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be great if I could do X, Y, or Z, you think? Or I'm just going to do this, it feels so good. No, it doesn't. Sin is a great liar, it makes you feel miserable. But through serious repentance, God's fatherly countenance will again shine upon you. And that's why the canons urge you to watch and pray. Always. Not just when you think you're being tempted, but all the time. Even when you think you're strong, you pray and you watch. Constantly praying. Why does Paul say that? Constantly praying. Throughout your life. It's something by which you offer gratitude to God when you pray, but also it's a real a means that God has given you to express to God help. Help me all the time, God. Even when I think I'm so strong and so great, that's when I really need to pray. But in the end, 
Even if you've sinned, you can lose the sense of God's favor, but God will never leave you or forsake you. He will preserve you to the very end. That is called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Article 6. For God, who is rich in mercy, according to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not take his Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. Neither does he let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and the state of justification or commit the sin which leads to death, that is, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and plunge themselves entirely forsaken by him into eternal ruin. Just so much hope there, isn't it? It's not up to you, it's up to God. And this was David's experience. Even though he committed adultery, even though he committed murder, he was forgiven and restored to God. He did the worst stuff, but he was forgiven by God. God's steadfast love, as David says, that is God's covenant faithfulness, not your faithfulness, God's faithfulness to his promises to fulfill the law and to take upon himself the punishment of sin is what saved David. It's not David's repentance. That is a man who's been broken by the conviction of God. I mean, many times you think, well, if I really show that I'm sorry, God, if I really uh, promise to have a new life, God, then you'll really forget. No, you can never show enough uh, sorrow to God. Sorrow is a, res- a response you have as the Spirit of God convicts you of your own sin. So notice that David asks God to do the work of forgiveness through His grace. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can, re- can create a new heart. So God's elect to fall, but they can never be lost. Comfort through the doctrine of election then is what you're seeking here. God's purpose of election does not and cannot change. You are God's elect that will never change. This leads Paul to say in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, important and vital realities, such as adoption, regeneration, justification, cannot be lost. But what does the article mean when it says God does not wholly withdraw the Holy Spirit from his own people even in their grievous falls? What does that mean? How can God partially withdraw the Holy Spirit from his own people? Well, the answer comes from understanding the context of our confessions and the terminology of this article. So first, context. As the canons have already stated, you are God's elect and nothing can change that fact. Through Christ's work for you, received by faith, you are justified. Nothing can change that fact either. Through the Holy Spirit, you subjectively become the people of God. Heidelberg Catechism 53. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that He is co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that He is also given to me, makes me by a true faith a partaker of Christ and all His benefits, comforts me and shall abide with me forever. By the way, there are many that didn't believe this. They believed that the Holy Spirit could come and go according to man's will. But the scriptures make it clear, especially in John 3, that the Spirit moves as He wishes, 
and as He is the one renewing the person. Likewise, as the Holy Spirit is sovereign in regeneration, He is sovereign in His continued operation, right? Therefore, man's will and sin have no bearing on the Holy Spirit moving in or out of a person. What about the Holy Spirit moving in degree, which is the substance of this article? Do not withdraw your Holy Spirit from me in degree. Well, as one theologian put it, I believe very nicely, there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit is withdrawn. The Holy Spirit can't leave a person, and he doesn't make and it doesn't make sense that he could be withdrawn even in part. So for the Holy Spirit to be withdrawn is for the Holy Spirit, when he is grieved, to recede from the foreground of our conscious life and experience. And he, as it were, goes back into the inmost recesses of a man's being. But he never departs the saints as far as the inmost recesses of their being is concerned. Nor does he become inactive. Nor does he become dependent upon our actions. He himself withdraws, but he also makes his way back into our conscious life and experience. And he does so not when he, or rather when we, allow him, but when he sovereignly drives the erring and sinning saint out to Christ for forgiveness, causes him to forsake his sin, repent, and confess it. In that way, the child of God once again becomes conscious of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit and has the assurance of his salvation restored and renewed. But unless the Holy Spirit were sovereign, even in this partial withdrawal and return, he would never return once he once withdrew. And that actually summarizes very well what happens with King David. David is broken because God broke him, right? Heal my broken bones, O God. He has convicted him of a sin. But then in God's providence, he moves by his spirit to renew David. And this is the canons of Dort. This is the Reformed faith. That God perseveres you to the end. And usually say, God, unless I really mess up. Right? And then it's, it's no good. If I really have a bad fall, it's all over, right? God says, no. Not if you are my child. Not if you are God's elect. I will persevere you to the very end. You will have some falls in this life. Some of them may be really bad. But I still love you as you have true faith. It's like God says, join the crowd. Look at King David. Look at Peter. He denied Christ. I mean, how bad can you get? You can get pretty bad. But God does not wholly withdraw His Spirit from you. There are times of conviction where the countenance of God is blurred for a while. And finally, and we'll close with this, it's very important to treat this subject, uh, God will not allow you to commit the unpardonable sin or permit you to be totally deserted and plunge yourself into everlasting ruin. Matthew 12. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Well, in context, the Pharisees were attributing Christ's work of casting out demons to the devil himself. This was a sin, of course, against the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ as the one who has God's grace to do miracles. The Pharisees denied that a revelation, that revelation, as it were, 
uh, by their words. Well, people today can still commit the sin by knowingly denying what they know to be true about Christ. It is in essence attributing to Satan what is really God's work. It is a final denial of Christ, saying that's it. But the canons tell you, as God's elect, you will not commit that sin, ever. And of course, if you're concerned that you've done so, you have not committed the sin. Because people that have committed that sin don't care any longer. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, the Word of God in Psalm 51 is a very powerful reminder to you that you will not fall, that God always loves you. He has you in His hand, and nothing can snatch you from that hand. And the response isn't, well, great, I'll do whatever I want. It's just the opposite, isn't it? If that's how God works, and that's how He sees you, you want more clarity about that love and grace, right? And you do that by walking with Him. If you go in the opposite direction, you become deluded. But you don't, brothers and sisters, because you love Christ and He first loved you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.